Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Connecticut is known for having some of the wealthiest communities in the U.S., as well as widespread economic and education disparities. This inequality is also visible in a lack of affordable housing around the state, but efforts to tackle the problem have been stymied by Connecticut towns who limit the development of housing units like apartments or duplexes that offer affordable rents. How's Governor Lamont dealing with this issue? Turns out he's taken a very different tact than the previous Malloy administration. We're going to talk about that coming up. First, I wanted to focus on a ProPublica Connecticut Mirror investigation that examines how wealthy suburbs curtail affordable housing in their towns. Uh, in studio with me now is Jacqueline Rabe Thomas. She's a reporter with the Connecticut Mirror who teamed up with ProPublica over the last year to investigate housing policies in Connecticut. Uh, Jackie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, first off, this partnership has been really interesting because you've been able to focus in on uh, state housing policies. Was this something that you had pitched and why? So I've covered education in Connecticut for 10 years and so much of what happens in school is the demographics in school and what the needs are and and the like. And so I've always sort of wanted to dive into housing and how, you know, the demographics of school are what they are. And when we think about uh, affordable housing, primarily uh, do we find affordable housing uh, mostly in our cities? Yes. So overwhelmingly, the the affordable housing is located in our cities. In places like Hartford, about half, just under half of the the units are designated for low-income families compared to other places where it hovers around 2 or 3% of the, the households. And then uh, why is that an issue when we see affordable housing uh, pretty much being uh, allocated to uh, cities versus spread out around the state? So... There's, you know, no shortage of research that shows where you live matters and that segregate housing segregation has an impact on things like schools. Schools depend on revenue from local property taxes to pay for things like the guidance counselors, the clubs after school, the, you know, all the things that make schools great depend on local property taxes. And if your property tax base um, is largely or, you know, lopsided, you're not going to be able to afford certain accommodations in your school. uh, And it's not just school, it's other things like you're not going to be able to afford to repair sidewalks when they they break down. You're, You're not going to be able to pick up you know, bulky trash in the neighborhoods if um, you don't have the revenue base to do that from your property taxpayers. Connecticut is one of the highest dependent states on local property taxes in the country. Uh, You decided to focus on a particular town uh, to look at uh, housing uh, policies, including, you know, uh, efforts to uh, put on or have affordable units uh, being built in particular towns. Uh, You chose Westport. Why Westport? So I looked at several towns over, you know, what this grant allowed me to do was really to spend a lot of time looking at different towns and what the housing policies were. And, you know, one town kept showing up as sort of standing out as far as some of its policies go, as far as affordable housing. 
um, you know, there's two different types of affordable housing, essentially. There's naturally occurring where you allow things like a duplex to be built or to be converted from, you know, a large property or a large home to be converted into a duplex. And then there's also, you know, affordable housing, you know, these larger apartment buildings. And in Westport, neither was really happening or the, the, the uh, things that I saw happening were they kept being denied, the properties that kept coming forward at the time. And so things like, you know, a four-acre lot where that was zoned for five single-family houses and they wanted to develop 12, it was denied. Um, another property, a similar situation, you know, a property right off the main street where it was zoned for four single-family ho- homes wanted to be wanted to have 15 units there um, denied. And so th- that's naturally a cor- affordable housing that would, uh, would be happening, and those were being denied. At the same time, there were some larger developments being proposed that were also being rejected for, um, you know, really close to a train station, really close to the main corridor off of the affordable housing um, area of town where they said that, you know, here's where affordable housing should be built or here's where multi-units should be being built. Um, We're just facing challenge after challenge. When you say affordable housing units, so we're talking about apartments, like two-bedroom apartments or also duplexes. So naturally occurring affordable housing, you know, if you're able, if there's a lot that's, let's say you have one acre and it's zoned to only allow one house. Well, that's going to be a lot more expensive in a place like Westport because the the value of that land is really high versus if you're allowed to put two units there, well, you split the cost of that land over two. So, um, you have that's sort of your naturally occurring and then you have subsidized housing where the state comes in and says you know we're going to help you with the construction costs of this if you designate some of those spots as affordable for low income or moderate income residents so that they can move in and come in and be able to afford to live in that community that otherwise they would have been priced out um, there's also a state statute that allows for developers to come in who want to develop say 100 unit building, they would have to reserve 30% of those units for low-income residents to be able to afford that. And that's how those developers get into those communities. You're listening to Where We Live. Uh, my, guest, my guest, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, reporter with the Connecticut Mirror, who teamed up with ProPublica for the year to investigate housing policies in Connecticut. Uh, we're learning about uh, why she focused on the town of Westport, which is in the southwest part of our state. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you mentioned uh, several uh, plans in Westport that were denied. So what were some of the reasons why uh, these particular projects were denied by local planning and zoning officials? So the most common explanations given is that, you know, you have frail public infrastructure, that your sewers can't handle the influx of residents that would would need to to also use them, or you don't have the sidewalks, or you don't have the, um, your firefighters aren't trained to draw from an aquifer um, because there's no sewer. Um, And the reality is that firefighters are trained to draw from aquifers um, and that there is some public money available for sidewalks or to widen a bridge that you may need to have widened in town so a firefighter can get over town. So there is sort of um, 
this idea that there's all these obstacles in the way of being able to develop affordable housing. But the reality is that um, if you have a town who's willing to overcome those obstacles, then you'll be able to develop affordable housing. In Westport specifically, I remember a meeting that I was sitting through where the town just was, the local planning and zoning board was unwilling to meet with Norwalk to talk about an access road so that this proposed development would have a second exit in case of an emergency or for a fire fire trucks to be able to get into the building. They weren't even willing to have the meeting. End of discussion. That's It, it was inappropriate, they said, to have the meeting. So you have to have a town that's willing to sort of overcome the barriers as they present themselves. They, you know, no one's saying that they're unnecessary barriers or that they're serious concerns. But if you have a way to move forward and if you're working with towns who want to sort of find a path forward, that's a very different conversation than saying we're not having a meeting. Uh, Jackie, uh, besides covering uh, these uh, important uh, local meetings uh, to find out the rationale behind whether to approve or deny particular developments that have affordable uh, uh, housing units as part of uh, these proposals. You also profiled uh, people. So when we talk about affordability, uh, tell us some of the people that you met who would benefit if there were more affordable housing units, say, in Westport, Connecticut. So I spent some time with this woman, Ashana Cunningham, who, you know, the more time I spent with her, the more I kept thinking, God, this could have been me. You know, she was, um, she's a college graduate. She, you know, she has three young children. And, you know, she was living paycheck to paycheck. She was a local, she was working at her, um, at a local child care facility, um, caring for other people's kids. And her wife got sick and could no longer work. And, you know, that was fine. She was living paycheck to paycheck. And then she got in a car accident. And now her transportation to get to work was no longer available. And, and that was sort of the last thing that put her over the edge of, you know, she didn't have a safety net to be able to draw from to pay that rent for, for more than a month. And so after that month came and her safety net, you know, her savings was dwindled down, she was homeless because she could no longer afford to um, live, in, you know, spend the 1200 or $1,300 a month to live in Bridgeport. Um, and she, she became homeless. You know, she wants to live in a town like Fairfield where she works. Uh, but she can't, can't because she can't afford the $1,700, $1,800 that would, it would cost to, to, to rent there. And there's not enough affordable housing where people, for people like Ashana. When we think about how much we pay per month of our income, whether it's housing or transportation or daycare, again, what does it mean for someone to have, find an affordable place to live? Is it a percentage of their monthly income that they shouldn't exceed? Typically, the gauge is that you shouldn't be spending more than 30% of your income on housing. That is, um, I think, not really feasible for many families. Um, and the reality is that many people spend much more than 30% of their income on family housing. I mean, I mean, when you look at what's been happening in Connecticut, that you have you know, places where a quarter of Connecticut's municipalities have seen a decline, you know, minor declines, one or two percentage of the rate of affordable housing that they have in town. So, 
we're not seeing an increase in affordable housing units being developed in Connecticut. Um, in actual unit count, yes, we are. But we're not, as far as a rate of municipalities, overall housing stock, it's being developed at a much slower pace than single-family homes in Connecticut. When we're talking about uh, that reality, Jackie, this is not something that just uh, came out of the blue over the last decade. Can you talk about uh, how Connecticut got to this point uh, with the history of policies that led to, again, uh, affordable or low-income housing uh, primarily uh, being allocated to our cities? Sure. So Connecticut has been a local rural state for a very long time. And so we have deferred decisions on zoning to local authorities. And what that means is Southwest Connecticut, Fairfield County, is the, has the widest income gap in the country, period. When you look at all the other metropolitan statistical areas, Connecticut's Fairfield County has the largest wage gap in the country. And so you have places like your Westports or your Fairfield essentially deciding what housing gets in and doesn't. And in Fairfield, they just recently denied approval of an affordable housing unit by their local housing authority, trying to get in penetrate that area so that you're able to have more housing for people like Ashana Cunningham, who wants to live in Fairfield, saying, no, we're not going to allow that to open. And then, and that's their local housing authority, where 100% of those units would be affordable. You know, and then you have also private developers who are not being allowed to, to go into those communities. So you have places that have had a snail's pace growth of affordable housing opening in communities. There is a law, the 830G, I'm sure many listeners have heard about 830G, that does allow for developers to bypass local zoning decisions. But the reality is that it can take years in order to get through the courts, in order to move forward with it, with an affordable housing through 830G. When you talk about a state law, uh, again, uh, trying to help developers with some of these projects that include affordable housing units, you know, what does the state uh, say in terms of how much of a town's total housing stock should be affordable? So the goal is that every town um, should have 10 percent or local developers are able to go around local zoning decisions through the 830G process if they don't have at least 10%. Um, but there you're allowed, but the courts are asked to decide if public safety or health is going to be at risk by allowing these affordable housing units to go into a community. So what happens is at the local zoning, there is an exhaustive process of traffic studies of, of you know, sidewalks, you know, everything to sort of prove or disprove that it would be a health or safety risk or risk to a community. And with all those studies, that's expensive. And so it takes years and with time takes money to get something through. And what, meanwhile, what that sends the message to developers is don't touch that community because it's going to take you 10 years to get through 830G in that community. And that costs a lot of money. And by the way, as you're taking time to go through a community and get that approval, that costs money that adds to the then housing costs. So, you know, if you're spending four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to get something through approval, well, guess where that ends up? Does it surprise you of the uh, developments that you tracked for your investigation that there are developers still trying to build uh, projects in the town of Westport because of these delays, as you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, some communities are the rent that a developer would get are so high that 
they, um, you know, it off, you're able to do the financial modeling and see that, you know, it is still worth it. Um, I don't know when developers calculate, like, all right, it's time to pack up our bags and leave. Um, I think what happens is, you know, I talked to one a developer who wanted to do the 12 units um, of just sort of naturally occurring more reasonable housing in Westport. And what they said is like, we're not going through this process again. Like this took us four years to get approval and it's just not happening again. So um, I think it's more of of that versus retreating from existing properties that you're already sort of all in on. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, reporter with the Connecticut Mirror, who teamed up with ProPublica over the last year to investigate housing policies in Connecticut. After the break, we're going to hear from an official in Westport, a town in southwest Connecticut that was the focus of Jackie's stories. Now, how does your town approach plans to build affordable housing? You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Election Day has passed, but it's likely one of the local races on your town ballot included seats on your town's planning and zoning board. Now, the planning and zoning, uh, again, commission or board, has the power to approve or deny development projects like affordable housing units. But often the thinking is these affordable units belong in low-income areas like cities. That thinking can exacerbate segregation and widen disparities. So what can be done about it? My guest, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas examined the housing issue in a joint investigation for ProPublica and the Connecticut Mirror. She found wealthy towns like Westport, Connecticut, often deny plans by developers to build affordable housing units in their community. Now, we wanted to hear directly from Westport. So joining me now in studio is Danielle Dobin, vice chair of Westport's Planning and Zoning Commission. She's also founder and chair of the town's Affordable Housing Subcommittee. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, how long have you been a PNZ member in the town of Westport? So I was elected to the PNZ two years ago, and I was appointed a few months before that to a seat that had been vacated by another Democratic commissioner. And what was your interest to be on this particular commission? Well, this was one of the issues that caught my eye. I'd say overall, I moved to Westport, and like a lot of people, wasn't paying too much attention to what was going on with town politics. But it pretty quickly came, became apparent that the tone of the PNZ wasn't really reflective of the town, and there was a lack of overall flexibility and agility that led to decisions that impacted everything from housing to traffic to infrastructure that was holding Westport back and I, I think really having a negative impact on our quality of life. And it seemed important to step up and to try and take a leadership role. And I was fortunate enough to find Michael Kammeyer and Greg Rutstein, two other Democrats, to run with me. And we were able to run on a platform that included a proactive response to 
any number of issues, including the development of affordable housing. And we won with um, quite by quite a bit mar- a big margin, which has put us in a situation where we're really able to effectuate some change on the local level. So we spent a good part of uh, the show so far talking with Jackie, who did this investigation again. Westport uh, was the focus, although Westport is not unique. There are other towns uh, in Connecticut uh, that also have uh, zoning uh issues or exclusionary zoning that can prevent particular developments with affordable housing units. You know, how do you respond to uh, Jackie's investigation and some of the issues uh, that she found? Well, I, I think part of what was really helpful for us with regard to Jackie's investigation is that I founded this affordable housing subcommittee, but I had a difficult time getting people to pay attention and attend our meetings. I had a meeting last week, and thanks in part to Jackie's spotlight on Westport, it was extremely well attended. And the attendees included our first selectman, who is really committed to being supportive on this issue, which is going to make a really big difference for us moving forward. Mm-hmm. So. You know, with regard to what's happened in the past, Jackie spent a lot of time looking at what has been denied, a lot of which I can't speak about because at least three of those cases are in litigation. But since I've been on the commission, we've had I think 15 applications that include an affordable component, and we've actually approved 11 of those 15. Um, we've approved about 300 units of multifamily development in Westport, which is why most people who live in Westport drive down the post road and ask, why are there so many big buildings in Westport? But the focus of my subcommittee has really been something different, which is how do we, we create more affordable opportunities for families? And that's a really important change. So mm-hmm. I had a meeting last week, and we are exploring things such as Number one, eliminating this kind of arbitrary multifamily cap that exists in Westport. You know, two, finding some areas where we would allow multifamily applications as of right without a special permit. You know, something that um, one of the other guests today was interviewed in Jackie's article noted is in Westport, like in most places in Connecticut, duplexes are not permitted as of right. So something that we started to explore was the idea of allowing an accessory unit So a a duplex to a certain degree on larger lots allowed as of right so that there can actually be um, a responsible development that reflects the density that people are looking for in Westport where they want to retain the sense of a small town but really allowing a lot more use of the land to provide better opportunities. And by better, I mean not studios but family-oriented housing. Since we received our moratorium from 830G, my commission has actually approved two different mixed-income multifamily projects. And in both cases, we pushed back hard on the developers and asked them to include include two-bedroom units instead of studios or Mm one-bedrooms. And we did that because this predominance of apartment buildings via 830G with only studios and one-bedrooms really limits opportunities for families. But what about the people who may not have families but uh, need access to affordable housing who may work in Westport or one of the neighboring towns? How do you address that need? I think we're trying to address both at the same time. I think that the predominance of units that have been constructed over the last few years consist of primarily one-bedroom and studios And what's been missing are these opportunities for families. And 
it also frames the debate differently. And I have found that when I have one-on-one conversations with people in Westport, and if I want to speak about high-density development and affordable housing, I turn them off. When I talk about values, when I talk about the history that brought us here, you know, acknowledging discriminatory lending practices, redlining, so many restrictive covenants that it, it's not a coincidence that Connecticut looks the way it is. For a lot of people, this is news to them. They just moved to the area. They didn't grow up here. And they certainly had nothing to do with this historic segregation of towns in Connecticut. And they very much want to be a part of a different way forward. I, I don't know if the words you used were a pathway forward, but I think the challenge on a local board with the energy to take this on, which I'm really proud to say we have right now, is that we're finding pathways that make sense for our community, but provide a totally different type of opportunity than existed in the past in terms of ways for people to move to Westport who weren't able to live here historically. Uh, Jackie Rabe Thomas is sitting next to, again, uh, Danielle Dobin, who's vice chair of Westport's Planning and Zoning Commission. Uh, So, Jackie, how do you respond to hearing about these uh, plans or uh, just thinking about different ways to propose uh, duplexes that uh, focus in on multifamily uh, units? So it's really interesting to hear that that's that's something that's gaining momentum. The reality is in Westport, I was looking through some of their zoning regulations yesterday, and, you know, to, to convert a home in, in m- many parts of the areas of Westport, you have to get special permission mm-hmm. from the planning and zoning. And it's capped with how many bedrooms it's able to be, and it's capped at how many square feet it can be, essentially an efficiency unit or a one-bedroom, really small bedroom. I think it's 800 square feet is the cap that's currently there. So the reality is it's, it's interesting to hear that that's taking place, but what's actually in process right now is that you need special permission. And that's only to build a, to subdivide a house for an 800 square foot unit. And and in many municipalities, um, to the the statewide issue, only 19 municipalities allow as of right having multi-units in their in their communities. So um, they would be joining 19 other municipalities if they did something like that. Well, I I think Westport wants to lead on this issue. And I think that Jackie's read of the current regs is accurate. Right now, if somebody wants to have an accessory unit, um, if it is not an antique property, historic property, then that accessory unit needs to be a part of the home itself, which obviously limits how much people want to create this. It also doesn't take advantage of the fact that we have so many spec builders in Westport developing new housing all the time, single family housing, where they could then create these accessory units just as a part of the redevelopment of a lot. Um, So I think this is a really impactful place for us to start. It's not the only place that we're looking to make changes in the regs. But we've kind of created over the last two years a flexibility on our board. I'm, I'm proud to say I think a lot of the existing members of our board have grown and evolved on this issue. And the way to create a sustainable change in a place like Westport isn't to have a few people create new laws that are an issue for the town, but instead to collaboratively work on a community towards a new approach that recognizes, number one, what's happened in the past. You know, what sort of community do we want to be? And also the economic realities of Connecticut right now, which is we need to allow 
younger people. We need to allow people who make less money to live in the communities or closer to the communities where they're working, and we want to be a part of that. You mentioned other members of uh, your Planning and Zoning Commission. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm curious uh, about some of uh, the feelings uh, in the past in the town of Westport. Uh, obviously, you don't speak for every resident in the town, but you know, are there fears that uh, these developments uh, bring in uh, people and issues that uh, the town of Westport uh, doesn't want uh, no. to deal with? There, there's nothing. Well, there's I wanted nothing to like play. This, this I wanted to people, play a clip. From one of your one of your colleagues, though, on the planning and zoning, Chip Stevens, uh, actually, he's not here to speak for himself, and I, I'm not going to speak. But I would like, I would like our listeners to hear what he said at a meeting at planning and zoning earlier, which uh, Jackie provided for us. You know, folks, if everybody's so concerned about this size housing and all, then maybe somebody should be thinking about saving some of these houses before they come down. The, the, the ranch houses, the, you know, the moderate size houses, and not taking down these houses all over town where they integrate into properties and make nice neighborhoods. To me, this is ghettoizing Westport. This is putting a whole bunch of density in one area making up for, you know, taking down houses all over town which are affordable, semi-affordable, and whatever. He used the term ghettoizing in Westport, and this is someone that was also re-elected uh, to the Planning and Zoning Commission. Are there people in your town that are worried about uh, certain people coming into Westport? So in that particular circumstance, Mr. Stevens was speaking specifically about the development of 500 Main Street, which is a high-end luxury development with no affordable component. I would never choose to utilize the same language that he did. Um, he and I come from, you know, different places and have different life experiences and different Westport experiences. And I will let him, you know, speak for himself on his comment. I think that what people in Westport are concerned about is high density. They have a choice in terms of where they want to live for the most part. They're commuting to New York City. They're opting to live in Westport where most of them have a one-way commute of an hour and a half to two hours each way in order to maintain a certain lifestyle in a small town by the coast. So what people are concerned about is what buildings look like not who's living inside of them. And I think that if you had conversations with most people in Westport the way that I have running for office townwide, you'd find that the vast majority of people in Westport are very supportive of the idea of Westport becoming a more diverse place in a lot of different ways. And, and we're, we're betting on that because what we're doing is, is potentially, you know, political dynamite. But I feel that we had support of the town when we ran on this idea of creating a more proactive response and a more proactive approach to affordable housing development that fits in with Westport. And this past week, the Democratic Commissioner Paul Leibowitz ran on very much the same platform, and he was the highest vote getter in a planning and zone in the planning and zoning race. So, you know, I think those results really speak for how Westport feels on this issue, which is that we're looking to be more agile, more dynamic, and they're very supportive of the direction that we're going. And that, you know, that is, to me, a, a unique moment in time in terms of 
changing how we've spoken about this issue and how we framed this issue in terms of reg- regulation in the past. I wanted to bring into our conversation uh, Sean Geo, who's policy director for the Partnership for Strong Communities. Again, this is where we live as we talk about affordable housing and how Connecticut municipalities respond to development that's proposed in their towns. Uh, Sean, thanks for being patient. We, um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so uh, Partnership for Strong Communities, again, this is a, a group that advocates for affordable housing. Uh, what was your response to Jackie's investigation and also to Danielle, who's talking about a ways to move forward in the town to try to incorporate more affordable housing? Well, Jackie's investigating has been uh, really remarkable for raising the profile of exclusionary zoning and its impact uh, on families across Connecticut. Uh, and it's not just Westport. It's really the entire state. Um, you know, Connecticut is a remarkable, uh, has a remarkable history in uh, implementing exclusionary zoning. Uh, and, and as Jackie uh, mentioned, it, you see the outcome in achievement gaps and a lot of other um, uh, indicators in, in, our, in our society here in Connecticut. Um, and so uh, when we hear about ways to move forward, you know, are there places, are there other specific towns that are, are doing just that, that can be a model for places mm-hmm. like Westport and others? Yeah, I think, I think in Connecticut specifically, there's really two things that um, could really uh, be work to expand the amount of inexpensive housing. And I, if we want to move away from the, the framing of affordable housing and mm-hmm. subsidized housing, uh, affordable subsidized housing is a form of uh, inexpensive housing. It's inexpensive to those tenants, not necessarily inexpensive to build. But we've talked a little bit about uh, smaller multifamily, duplex, triplex. Those are all very um, sort of traditional forms in Connecticut. Uh, so there's ways in w- which we can try to le- re-legalize that inexpensive housing. We've gone through an experiment, a 60, 70, 80-year experiment in a lot of our communities where we say there's one way to live in Connecticut and it's in a single-family home on a large lot. And society has changed a lot. The nuclear family that 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 model is built for is really a very small minority of households in Connecticut now. So there are communities that are recognizing that across the country. Oregon uh, passed a law this past session that re-legalizes small multifamily duplexes, triplexes, four-unit buildings in scale with their communities across the state. Uh, So that's one way to to do it. And another way, uh, which I think there is an interest in in the state, is to build more densely around transit stations. Mm -hmm. Those are public assets that get folks to their jobs, like uh, like, uh, your other guests mentioned in New York, whether it's New York or Bridgeport. And more people should have that opportunity to access that transit. Let's talk more about this idea of uh, affordable housing uh, units being near uh, transportation uh, hubs, uh, Jackie. And so are these projects uh, moving forward in the state at all? Depends what town. Um, So there's been a lot of talk about pushing transit-oriented development. But the reality is in Fairfield, Something just got shut down. That's a half mile from from the rail station, or not from the rail station. Sorry, from the bus line um, in Westport. Half a mile from the train station there in Newington. I mean, I could go on. Um, so I think it's a matter of what town you're talking about. I think certain towns embrace transit-oriented development, and other towns don't. So um, there has to be, you know, the. I hate to use this metaphor, but the carrot or the stick. You know, we've tried for years to have carrots 
And, you know, we've the state has given out money for under the Malloy administration has given out historic levels of funding to build affordable housing. And still in certain communities, they have not embraced affordable housing. Um, And so you have the reality that there is this, you know, the the word of or the the phrase of the day is transit oriented development. But I think it's a lot easier um, to say that than to actually implement it. Mm. Uh, Danielle Dobin, who's with the Planning and Zoning Commission in Westport, tell us about that project. Sure. So um, we I'm delighted to report that we actually approved, I think, three weeks ago, a transit oriented mixed income multifamily project in Westport. So it is the Saugatuck Center 2 project, and it is a multifamily building where we allowed a little bit of a higher density and a little bit of a higher height than typically permitted under our regs to permit the development of this new project that is walkable to so many incredible resources, including to the train. Um, And that's something that we've passed, again, in the last few weeks after we already received our certificate of moratorium from the state. But um, just in defense of of the new governor a bit, the governor Lamont is committed, I think, to helping municipalities create opportunities for affordable housing in Fairfield County. And he actually created a task force that's looking at just this issue that's headed by a really capable um, woman who is looking at state-owned properties located at you know, adjacent to important transit resources and how those can be leveraged it to create, you know, a higher and better use and more affordable opportunities close to transit. But, you know, again, he just got in. He's getting this off the ground. I attended the first meeting of this task force. Um, Jackie was actually there. And I think that they're just getting started. They're identifying, I think, six sites in Fairfield County that they're going to target for this type of development. And the reason that it's so important to be doing this on a county level is because there are legitimate infrastructure issues with regard to higher density. You know, Westport's a a town. It's a small town. It's not a city like Minneapolis or Portland, Oregon, where we can simply add a lot more high density without thinking about it because there's not robust public transportation. There are single lane roads everywhere. Half the town doesn't even have sewers. So there are genuine limitations to what can go where. And I think that when you have a task force looking from a county level, they're paying attention to the specifics. And instead of focusing on trying to do something that won't happen, they're really looking on a granular level at where can we put something that will be impactful? Where can we put this in collaboration with local authorities so that it happens and you don't have a situation, which Jackie referenced, like in our neighboring town of Fairfield, where there's a housing authority project that gets rejected from the town bodies themselves. Instead, we're working with Carol Martin, who's also the head of our housing authority, to find quite literally places and parcels where we can work together and start from a place of yes to get to where we want to go collaboratively instead of having people spend time and money on something that's not going to go anywhere. I wanted to turn back to Sean Gio again, Policy Director for the Partnership for Strong Communities. Sean, how do you respond when you hear Danielle mention, you know, limitations in a a place like a town like Westport? Um, You know, is that uh, something that should be uh, held up as uh, probably one of the reasons why some of these developments are not approved? 
Well, I, I won't speak to individual developments because it's true that there's individual site conditions and infrastructure, but uh, the, there's no question that uh, Connecticut is not built out. And, uh, you know, large, large lot subdivisions, there's, uh, there's a level of density that could be increased even without uh, sewer um, facilities. And, and Lower Fairfield County has a pretty robust network of sewer facilities and there's no question that if the state in my view is going to invest in uh, things like improved transit access they should be investing in the requisite infrastructure in those transit areas to allow a greater density those are public assets and they're state assets Uh, the metro north uh, ct fast track the new Connecticut Rail, they're meant for all Connecticut residents. We, pay, we all pay our taxes, state taxes, and we should see a higher level and expect a higher level of density and a higher level, really, of walkable livability in Connecticut yeah. uh, because of that. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Marianne's calling from Bethel. Marianne, you're on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I like the idea of affordable housing, um, but Right now, a developer can get an 830G from the state and come in and develop without and change the neighborhood. My neighborhood has someone who, which is zoned single family. It has one lot. It's about an acre and a quarter. And the developer is trying to put in 11 units of housing, all two-bedroom units at that which will double the population of the neighborhood, which is on the border of a wetland, um, within half a mile of an ugly development he already built. You know, I, I think there are ways we could have affordable housing. We have so much unsold housing in Bethel, Reading, um, that if there were rule, you know, planning and zoning rules to let those things be subdivided into two or three units, um, that would make sense. But, you know, nobody in my neighborhood wants this. And as of now, we have been uh, done environmental studies and paid for a lawyer um, to stop this development. And so far, it's at least on hold. Well, Marianne, thank you for giving us a, a glimpse of what's happening in the town of Bethel. I want to turn back to Jacqueline Rabe Thomas. Uh, we heard Marianne say that nobody in the, the town or the neighborhood wants this. So um, if that uh, continues, and again, developments are proposed and the residents don't want it, and the planning and zoning officials respond to what the residents are saying because they're elected in that position, how do we move forward in, in the state of Connecticut? So what I've witnessed with 830G applications is that's sort of a last case scenario that it can be a negotiation. You know, the 830G is supposed to be there if you have a town saying, no, absolutely never under no conditions will this happen. So I don't know the situation that's going on in Bethel, but, you know, it sounds like it might be ripe for a conversation of, hey, how about four units? Can we do that? And you won't have to go through these years of litigation um, as sort of a compromise. And I've seen that happen in some communities where you have something like that. You know, maybe the developer is proposing 11 units in that municipality because they know that that's what it's going to cost to actually make their financials work after the years of litigation that's going to ensue to get something built in that town. 
We're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank Daniel Dobin for coming up here as vice chair of Westport's Planning and Zoning Commission, also founder and chair of the town's Affordable Housing Subcommittee. Danielle, thank you for talking about what's happening in Westport. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks to both of your guests who, uh, you know, I think in their ways are really helping us move towards our goal as well. Uh, Sean Gia was also here, policy director for the Partnership for Strong Communities. Uh, Sean, thank you for your perspective. Thanks, Lucy. This is a big topic. We hope to return to it uh, coming up uh, in the next few months here on Where We Live. Uh, After the break, we're going to look more at what the state of Connecticut under Governor Lamont is doing when we talk about affordable housing. And you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you happen to be in Hamden tomorrow night, please join me uh, for a conversation with Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, author of the new book, Identity Politics in the United States. Uh, we'll talk about her new book at 6 p.m. at Quinnipiac University's Mount Carmel Auditorium. We hope to see you there. Now, today we've been talking about affordable housing and, again, how towns respond when certain uh, projects are proposed in their neighborhoods. Uh, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas is in studio with me, a reporter with the Connecticut Mirror, who teamed up with ProPublica over the last year to investigate housing policies in Connecticut. And we wanted to focus more now on how Governor Lamont has responded uh, to affordable housing uh, projects. Uh, And we reached out to the Connecticut Department of Housing. Uh, The department said they could not provide us with a staff member today to speak about this issue because it's a state holiday. And I should note also that our show originally was uh, scheduled for October 31st, and they at that time also declined uh, to give us anyone to talk about this. So Jackie Rabe Thomas, we're glad that you're here uh, because you've been covering uh, this issue. Uh, in your investigation, you spoke to Governor Malloy, whose administration took a very different tact than what we're seeing with Governor Lamont. Um, just describe for us the differences between these two administrations. Sure. So... I mean, the number one thing is that Malloy, year after year, had housing reform proposals. Lamont didn't propose a single bill this year for housing reform. Um, He also didn't propose any money for housing, Um, affordable housing. Malloy spent a lot, over a billion dollars in state funding on affordable housing. And that was, the legislature approved that really at his urging. Um, And And, and why is the governor not uh, put forth any proposals? And why is there no money towards this? That's a very good question. Um, You know, you kind of ask what their reforms are or what their proposals are. And, um, you know, their approach is that they are going to work collaboratively with municipalities to get things done that haven't been able to get done in the past because, you know, conversations maybe will be more successful this time around um, with this administration and trying to get things across the finish line. I should note that, um, you know, in places like Fairfield, Westport, Newington and Waterford that, you know, those communities have rejected affordable housing proposals under the Lamont administration in Waterford just, you know, two weeks ago. That would have provided some, half of those units were aimed for veterans. And so they would have been able to um, push that along or I don't know what's being done at the state level, if anything, to help get those projects across the finish line in some better off communities. In your investigation with ProPublica, you did approach uh, Governor Lamont to uh, gauge uh, how he believes uh, the state should be uh, collaborating with uh, towns like Westport? You know, what did he tell you? 
Lamont said he wants to, you know, work with them and try to convince them that, you know, this is necessary, um, you know. Try to convince them. Yeah, jury's still out whether or not that's going to happen. Um, I, I think it's very naive to think that previous administrations haven't been sort of selling the need for affordable housing. Um, you know, there is a, re, a I think there's an acknowledgement that there's an affordable housing crisis in Connecticut. Um, just what's going to be done, I think, remains to be determined. Uh, with uh, no uh, funding allocated to move affordable, new affordable housing projects forward, you know, how has the Department of Housing responded? Are there other, uh, I guess, uh, pots of money, so to speak, that they can lean on federally? Yeah, so there's federal funding um, primarily through the low-income housing tax credit. That is the largest pot of money for affordable housing across the country, including in Connecticut. Um, and so the decision is where those are located. Historically, they have been located in high poverty areas. So we're putting low-income individuals, we're building more low-income housing in low-income communities has been the approach. And that continues to exacerbate segregation when that is the only focus. Exactly. Uh, before we uh, end our hour, uh, Danielle Dobin, who's with Westport's Planning and Zoning Commission, uh, she said that the governor uh, just came on board and, and deserves a little uh, time to figure out uh, how to move this issue forward. I mean, what's your take? So he did create a task force, the transit-oriented development. Um, they have had one meeting so far. Um, I believe they're meeting quarterly. And they are going to decide how to forge a path forward. Um, during that first meeting, the chairman of that panel suggested to use state-owned property to build affordable housing um, or to build to, for development, whether it be affordable market rate or you know retail developments, whatever that looks like. Um, that that is a real carrot that towns can be offered by the state. They have not done an inventory of said property. Um, when I asked for, hey, how many properties are we talking about that you own around um, that? that, that's not available yet, so it remains to be seen. Um, one, they're still going to defer to the local municipalities of whether or not those, what happens on those lots of land. We did hear from um, some listeners during the show uh, via Twitter. Constanza writes, people talking about preserving small town feel via zoning regulation, climate change, economic inequality, gender violence, racism are pushing people out of their homes and countries. Uh, she writes, must give up this notion of small town charm as value. The world has changed. And Kathy writes, Newington is not only currently involved in litigation over our planning and zoning commission denying an affordable housing application, but is now trying to apply for a moratorium that's unlikely to be approved because the housing doesn't fit the state definition of affordable housing. Again, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. We hope to talk about this again here on Where We Live. I want to thank Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, reporter with the Connecticut Mirror, for her excellent investigation. We appreciate you putting this on our radar. Thanks for having me. Uh, today's show, produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Learn more about the show? Just download our uh, show on your favorite podcast app, Where We Live.